0: Early In the early texts, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, different visions of actually what the Buddha taught. And sometimes the kinds of things that go on in the stories and the actions that the Buddha takes are a little bit more revealing. So I wanted to, I wanted to do this and talk a little bit about a, an episode that occurred in his life at a place called Kosambi. If any of you, have anybody familiar with this book? It's called The Kosambi Intrigue. No. Oh, it's fabulous. It's a novel. It's written by a, one of us who's a practitioner and spent a lot of time studying the conditions uh, at the time of the Buddha. And like a novel, instead of, I mean, you, you read it and you step into the life at the time. How do you spell Kosambi? K-O-S-A-M-B-I. And um, it, it's a, a great story. The Buddha is certainly in it. <laughs> um, but it's not written standing over his shoulder. He shows up and he goes, and it's a, it's a story of the, the conditions of monastic life and social life at the time. And it's, a, it's an episode in the, in the Buddha's life that um, just reveals a bunch of different things that are... Uh, teachings that are sometimes difficult to point to so the story is that there were a bunch of monks during uh, living living in in uh, a park at Kosambi and one of the one of the senior monks uh, left some water in a little bowl in the latrine at the end of his his washing up and one of the other monks, who was a, apparently an advocate for uh, strict adherence to rules, said, that's a, you know, that's a mistake. That's a, you have to apologize for breaking the rules. And the, the first monk said, no, no, that's not really a mistake. You know, the mistakes are mistakes of the heart. And the other guys, no, well, it's, you know, certs as a candy mint, certs as a breath mint. Um, and sides got drawn up, and what started it started what was now referred to as the quarrel at Kosambi, where the monks and nuns, I guess they were pretty much just monks at that point, couldn't agree. And so the story goes that um, uh, the Buddha went and talked to them. And he actually tried to persuade each side to see some merit in the other side's position. And he failed. Which is interesting because you sort of think, well, you know, it was the Buddha, right? If the Buddha came and said, you know, cut, cut it out, people would say, oh, sorry, and, and knock it off, right? You'd think. But, not that so much. Quarrels were a big issue for the Buddha, you know, uh, from the very beginning. The stories about uh, why the Buddha left home and uh, went into the forests to seek liberation, usually in the tradition, some of you are familiar with the story of the heavenly messengers. You know, his, his charioteer took him out of the palace and he Walk, he, walking around, he saw an old man, a, a corpse, a, a sick person. And he said, what's the story here? And the, his charioteer said, it happens to everyone. And the Buddha had been sheltered, according to the story. And then he saw a, a Samana, someone uh, who was living homeless in the forest. <coughs> practicing spiritual disciplines. And that's the story. But of course, in the early texts, that story never is told about the Buddha. It's something that tradition has sort of, sort of morphed in the tradition and come to us that way. Sometimes I think of the the texts in the the early texts or in the Dharma that comes to sort of the result of a 2,500 year game of telephone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's kind of, sometimes it's hard to tell, and the Buddha foresaw that, actually. He foresaw that. There's a story that he tells about um, a drum called the summoner, and it was apparently such a fabulous instrument that you could hit it, and it, you could hear it for, I don't know, seven leagues? What's a league? Anybody know what a league is? Well, whatever it was. It's, it's a way, so you could hear it... Uh, you know. But, you know, over time it's this wooden drum, it dries and cracks and would start to vibrate, so they take a little peg and hit it in there, and pretty soon the drum was so full of pegs that you couldn't hear it in the next room. And the Buddha said it's in the same way that in the future, uh, there will be monks who won't listen when the discourses, the words of the Tathagata, the Buddha, are spoken. They won't lend an ear, won't set their hearts on listening, but they will listen when discourses that are literary works, the works of poets, elegant in sound, elegant in rhetoric, the work of outsiders, words of disciples when they're recited, they will lend an ear to them. So sometimes I think that the, the, what the Buddha does in particular circumstances uh, reveals um a lot about a lot more about his character than the words we have about him because the words sometimes get a little garbled the buddha my friend lee brasington says the buddha actually he thinks the buddha left left home because of quarrels this is a passage from early text in this uh sutanipata which is an incredibly personal uh, statement to come to us from so far away. He says, fear is born from arming oneself, which is sort of the reverse of what you think, that you, you know, when you're afraid you reach for your guns. He's saying you reach for your guns and fear comes with it. Just see how many people fight. Let me tell you about the dreadful Fear that caused me to shake all over, seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. The world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not find one. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. He says, but then I discerned a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's when per- pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. And when you pull the thorn out, everything clears up, presumably. But quarrels were an issue for the Buddha from the very beginning, quarrels and disputes. And he went to the, he went to the monks that were fighting And this is uh, purportedly one of the things he said. He said, what can you possibly know? What can you see that you take to quarreling and brawling and are deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers? That a great image. That you can neither convince each other nor be convinced by others. That you can neither persuade each other nor be persuaded by each other. And it didn't work. All the charisma of the Buddha. It's not like this is something that happened in the past. I was reading the Times this morning the account of of the State of the Union speech, which I didn't hear. But this is what they, this, this is just great. He said, The nation described by the President on Tuesday night in his final State of the Union address is a global power on the rise again with more jobs, better health care, and stunning innovation. Though grappling with serious challenges, it's poised for greater progress. The country that Republican presidential candidates will depict on Thursday night in their next debate is a darker place a once great power that has lost ground in a dangerous world, surrendering its authority and leadership and diminished freedom and opportunity at home. Totally different visions. And do we take sides? We take sides. It happens almost automatically. But the Buddha didn't take sides. He didn't side with either. He didn't say the Dharma is this, the Dharma is that. What he urged was... Uh, opening to the others As it's uh taking sides is something we automatically do, not just with you know the whole picture but on on uh, well we've all got sides pick sides with Donald Trump or Steve Avery you know is he guilty or not or guns and Apple versus Android. <laughs> uh, Bacon versus eggs, I mean. (laughs) Taking sides is something, it almost happens automatically. We don't even notice it. We just, well, obviously. But the Buddha was not, didn't take sides. I think it's, it's really interesting. Quarrels, he suggests, come from clinging to views. And clinging to views, and this clinging means to believe. We believe our thoughts, we believe our ideas, we believe our side. And the quarrels, of course, lead to conflict and violence and. We'd like, we take sides, I think, because it it's uh, an identity thing. Who are we? Where do we stand? Uh, how are we to, um, how are we to act? And our identity is largely fashioned out of what sides, various sides we're on. Hmm And I, I don't think that the automatic nature of that is a mistake. I mean it's not, it's not that we're doing something wrong, it's the way we're built. I think that in terms of uh, evolution, we need to, to be able to respond speedily to what happens in the world. We have to respond in terms of our, our map, our modeling, our internal model. So we rely on it, we act almost reflexively in terms of it. The Buddha didn't say that you shouldn't have a map that you shouldn't have a model. Clinging to it is is tricky. The clinging to it is there's an emotional thing that goes on with our ideas, our understandings. Sort of like the moth and the flame. The moth only sees the flame and it's bright and warm and it flies right in it doesn't see its own compulsion, its own desire for warmth and light. It sort of takes that for granted. And we're the same, you know? And in this case, our view, our understanding seems like the light. And it seems like the light for the people we disagree with, too. It's the, the Buddha, um, Monks do not wage wordy warfare. And then he gives an example of wordy warfare. So what this is, I I think this is amazing. This is presented as the words of the Buddha. So this is wordy. You don't understand this dharma and discipline. I understand this dharma and discipline. How could you understand it? You've fallen into wrong practices. I have the right practice. You have said afterwards what you should have said first, and you said first what you should have said afterwards. What I say is consistent, what you say isn't. What you've thought out for so long is entirely reversed. Your statement is refuted. You're talking rubbish. Sort of. We're sort of all in there, you know. <laughs> um, And why should you not do this? Such talk, monks, is not related to the goal. It's not fundamental to the holy life, does not conduce to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, tranquility, enlightenment, and nibbana. When you have discussions, monk, you should discuss suffering, the arising of suffering, the cessation, and the path. It's the four, the four truths. So the question is, how does one not dispute? It's really interesting because Buddha couldn't convince the people then. What, what message can we take? The Buddha said, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. In in a, in a lot of different places he says, a bhikkhu, a bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none, he employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. He sides with none. You know, there's a call in there. How do we live in the world without taking sides? Is that possible? How could we do it? He says, bhikkhus, Another place. I do not dispute with the world. World, Rather, it is the world that that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. This isn't just one spot. How about, friend, I assert and proclaim a teaching in such a way that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes, and its people. sort of a Cohen. How do you live in the world without contending, without taking sides? We're invited to take sides all the time, and we take sides even when we're not invited. (laughs) We take sides in our own mind. (laughs) There's There's a sense in which Having an opinion and clinging to it is provide some stability and security rather than just not knowing. So the Buddha couldn't persuade these (coughs) quarreling monks. This is the, uh, the account of this. These were a bunch of things that the Buddha said to the monks. He said, well, and interestingly, in this text, which comes from one piece of text, you may be familiar with some of these from the Dhammapada. The, the, the early texts are kind of patched together in a lot of ways. Take a hunk of text from here and put it in there. Um, he abused me, struck me, defeated me. He robbed me in those who do not harbor thoughts like these. Hatred will be allayed, for in this world, hatred is never allayed by further acts of hatred. It is allayed by non-hatred. So the Buddha tried to persuade them. They said, no, no, you don't worry. You're pretty little enlightened head about this. We'll take care of it. And of course, the din got louder and the Buddha finally left. He left. You know, there's a lot, you know, the great way is not difficult for one who had no preferences. The Buddha had preferences. He preferred not to be hanging around with squabbling monks, particularly those who weren't listening to him. <laughs> 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 I don't, it's, it's important because there's a tendency to think that, you know, enlightenment, whatever that means, sort of enlightenment is... I think I'm thinking of enlightenment these days as sort of the fantasy vision of the fulfillment of all our cravings, something that's permanent, you know not not dukkha, not unsatisfactory, something real. so it's sort of a vision out there, but raises an interesting question because remember the the, uh, the the situation where he and Ananda are looking out over the throngs of monks. I'm not sure how many monks make a throng, but there was lots. C- couldn't it? He didn't have a bullhorn, so it had to be smaller than we think. It wasn't a stadium full. Um, but Ananda says to the Buddha, this must be, this is pretty important, this, this sangha business, this this community business, must be half the holy life. And the Buddha says, don't say that, Ananda. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. So there's this sense in the community that Sangha is really important. But the Buddha left to be on his own. He said, if one can find a worthy friend, a virtuous, steadfast companion, then overcome all threats of danger and walk with him content and mindful. But if one finds no worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves his conquered realm, walk like a tusker elephant in the woods alone. Better it is to walk alone. walk alone and do no evil at ease like a tusker in the woods so it creates a, a you know a question about sangha and how we relate to others on the path mm. Sangha is one of the refuges, take refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Sangha, refuge in the Dharma, refuge in the Sangha. And I guess refuge in the Sangha is intended to point to the Sangha as a place for the support of our practice. So Sangha at the time would have been the community of enlightened monks or awakened monks and nuns community of monastics generally, and there are places where sangha is still, in, the word sangha is intended to, to refer to monastic communities. Down at Vajrapani in, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, there's a, which is a, a, a Tibetan monastery, there's a uh, sign next to the food table that says, out of courtesy we serve sangha first. Which means we serve the people in robes first, but we like to think of this as a sangha, our our companions and associates in the in the practice. And so there's there's some sense in which when we're gathering together in the in the interests of the Dharma, we're participating in sangha. But now we've got the electronic environment. My wife has friends in. Uh, near the Australian outback who listened to Sylvia and Gil, Franzell, their talks on on the internet. So Sangha includes the technology and the artifacts, you know, it's the culture of awakening. Hmm. How do we, you know, our relationship, to others, there's a, there's a story that the Buddha tells about, or that is in the scriptures, I guess the Buddha didn't tell it, about an, a couple of acrobats. And the acrobats, so, so here, I, my understanding of what they did was, one of them would hold a pole, probably with a brace or something around their neck and shoulders, and the other one would climb the pole and do stuff up there and um, then come down and then they pass the hat. And so the one says to the other, you watch out for yourself and I'll watch out for myself and we'll be just fine. And the other says, no, I'll watch out for you, you watch out for me and then we'll be fine. No, no, you watch out for me, well. <laughs> so he went to the Buddha to see whose side the Buddha would take. And Buddha basically said, well, you're both right. You take care of yourself by taking care of the other, and you take care of the other by taking care of yourself. And he said, and how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others, by patience, non-harming, loving-kindness, and by caring for others. Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others, and looking after others, one looks after oneself. So he didn't take a side. That's sort of what he did with the monks of Kosambi. He tried to persuade them that the rules were valuable, but the rules were not, you know, the whole story. Oh, it's an interesting it's a um, it's interesting his the way he frames the relationship to others in the sangha. And when does, when is when is sangha? Oh. I mean we can get together and watch Groundhog Day yet again. Um, you know, as a sangha activity. How many times have you seen that? Over and over. There's a there's a place where the Buddha uh, comes out of his meditation and he encounters a bunch of monks sitting around and says, what are you guys talking about? And they're kind of embarrassed. This is what they were talking about and the Buddha says, this kind of conversation is not suitable. For monks, maybe I mean, not for us, necessarily, but just to be alert. He says, his conversation about kings I guess the State of the Union message counts. Kings, robbers and ministers. I mean, El Chapo and you know ministers, ministers of state armies, alarms. Battles, that's the front section of the New York Times. Food and drink, it's the food section of the Times. (laughs) Clothing, furniture, garlands, and scents, it's the style section (laughs) in the advertising. Relatives, vehicles, Villages, towns, cities, the countryside. (laughs) Women and heroes. The gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead. That's the obituary section. Mm -hmm. The creation of the world and of the sea. Talk of whether things exist or not. Pretty interesting. These are not suitable topics of conversation, he says. Now that doesn't mean that in lay life, these aren't appropriate. But that our progress on the path is not enhanced. Those kind of conversations, not about Sangha, not about our refuge. These are the topics that he encouraged. (coughs) Talks on modesty, on contentment. How much emphasis does this culture Place on contentment, any at all? Contentment. I mean, maybe in some future lifetime, right? It's all about pursuit. It is. It is. There's a there's a uh, a Zen book titled, and I I'm not even sure after you. I mean, the title is, "Ending the Pursuit of Happiness." Because if, pursu- if you're always pursuing happiness, you're guaranteeing yourself you'll never be happy. <laughs>
1: you
0: know. Contentment. On seclusion. You know. Sort of the Tusker, Tusker element. On non-entanglement, on arousing persistence, on virtue. Virtue, he means sila. He means ethical practice, ethical behavior. And my view um, has become that um, sila is the jackpot. It's the, it's the prize of the practice. The ability to live a life free from uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. A life, a life free from dukkha is the prize. Virtue, it's, it's, the, it's, what we, it's the whole thing on concentration, on insight, release, and on the knowledge and vision of release. He says, if you uh, were to engage repeatedly in these 10 topics of conversation, you would outshine even the sun and moon And then there's, there's there's this little addition here, which I really kind of find cute. He says, "You would outshine even the sun and moon, so mighty, so powerful. To say nothing of the wanderers of other sects." <laughs> Sounds like propaganda, maybe inserted later. <laughs> so, you know, the relationship the relationships are really important. So he goes to, uh, he, he leaves these squabbling people and he goes to visit his cousin, Anuruddha, who's living in the forest with a few other, with two or three other monks. And he goes to him and he says, I hope that you guys, I hope you're getting along. You're living in accord with mutual appreciation. And they say, well, yeah. And he says, you know, how do you pull that off? I just left these guys that, you know, they can't even agree about water in a little bowl. I mean, really it doesn't matter what the fight is about, right? You think that the people with the, billion, the billionaires, they're fighting over whether the rams go to LA or the raiders go to, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and he says, yep. So the Buddha says, how do you do it? And Ananda says, I think this, I think this way. It's such a gain for me that I'm living with such companions in the holy life that I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness. I maintain mental acts of loving kindness. And I think, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. That is a high bar. And it's not the kind of setting aside what I wish to do that used to, you know, the message to women was abandon what is of interest to you and just take care of the people around you, you know, submerge your own interests. It's not that. Reminds me of Tenzin Palma. You guys know Tenzin Palma? It's a woman who went and spent 17 years in a cave in the Himalayas. And during a, during a uh, she, she left, and I, it was an odd story. For some reason, I, I have this memory that like the, the week she was gonna leave after 17 years, somebody from the Indian government came and knocked on the cave and said, you're here without a visa. <laughs> you have to go (laughs) for some reason I think that that's in my mind maybe it's just my fantasy (laughs) they'll find you in a cave but somebody asked her my gosh 17 years and what a discipline what is she said no it's what I wanted to do and it's the same in this I set aside what I'm minded to do and do what the others Intend to do that's easy to do. I can do that with my granddaughter. I just say what do you want to do today? (laughs) Whatever you know But not so easy the rest of the time But it's but it's a high bar and it's a bar that includes opinions Setting aside what I think is right My opinion about how things ought to be, not taking sides again. Now, and and uh, this is not you know the teaching of how to do this. It's not. it's not made explicit. In some ways, the Dharma itself is implicit. You know, it's not articulated directly. But how does one not dispute? How does one. For me, my understanding is to just not go beyond what you can know for yourself and just say, this is how it looks to me. You preserve, the Buddha calls it preserving the truth. You preserve the truth by recognizing that your perception is your perception. And and to safeguard yourself by not going beyond what you can know. You know There's stories about, I mean, you can read in the early texts stories about people walking through walls and walking on water and swimming through the ground, and I sort of think, well, you know. Um, the the, the Buddha Dharma was in competition with other sects at, at, at the end of the Buddha's life. The Buddha died and, and then who? he's, you know, the brand is gone. So you got to approach the people, the patrons who are going to support the various groups. So, you know, you sort of gin up the image of the Buddha. So there's this supernatural powers and many people think they practice. Uh, But in Zen, you know, they say the miracle is when you're hungry you can eat and when (laughs) when you're tired you can sleep. Just amazing to be here. So the, the, the teachings about being with others that are revealed through this story, uh, Kosambi, are teachings that are in accord with the, with the Eightfold Path, abandoning our own neediness and looking to the needs of others, acting out of compassion for the needs of others rather than grasping after the objects of our desire. And the objects of desire can be you know, conceptual, mental, opinions, ideas about how things should be. When we cling to views, we get into disputes and arguments. How is it possible to live? This is you know, a Cohen. How is it possible to live without contending? We can spend, our, we can spend a lot of time practicing that, trying to figure it out. The, the <coughs> Buddha, the the uh, the, general, the teaching of the Buddha is summarized in a little verse in the Dhammapada, which is which goes, um, abandon evil. And actually, the word is papa, which means that which drags you into suffering. So, abandon evil. Practice the good and cultivate the mind which I kind of translate or update into street language more like don't make things worse. Mm -hmm. Be a benefit if you can and figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. That's where our practice comes in. So how do we, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm open to any thoughts or suggestions about how to practice living without contention? Yeah. Could I ask you to comment on something? Please. So, I, I resonate a lot with what Donald Rothbard says about engaged Buddhism. That's mm-hmm. important to him. Mm-hmm. And, and I live in the world. I'm going to vote in November. Mm-hmm. Um, my politics, I like to think, come from ultimately a place of love and compassion, and the person I'm going to vote for I think his do too. So, you know, think of someone like Gandhi. What is the difference between taking sides in the way you were describing and taking a principled stand, uh, taking a stand for values that reflect love and compassion? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the Buddha had preferences. I what had is this, preferences. What is this? Right, the Buddha had preferences. But what does this principled stand look like? I mean, a principled stand, that phrase is abstract. You know, um, I just watched the movie Gandhi recently, two, three weeks ago. Fabulous, worth revisiting, worth revisiting. And so it wasn't so much that he took a conceptual stand. He didn't... Uh, adhere to a an opinion or a view. He put his body in a place where the response that it drew, you know, th- those people marched into the beating. Uh, you know, the nonviolence showed the, their nonviolent approach showed the violence. It displayed the violence with the water hoses, and uh, you know, and people recoiled. If he'd argued if he'd taken a principled stand like the other guys on in the committee, you know, if he'd fought back, it would have looked different, and it wouldn't have revealed what it revealed. Martin Luther King wouldn't have revealed what he revealed. They weren't, the principled stand was a stand, an implicit stand. <laughs> he would say, you know, ah, support human life and compassion. But it wasn't argue, it wasn't quibbling over water in a bowl or you know whether the response to you know Iran taking four sailors was appropriate or enough or you know uh, so you can take a principled stand without arguing you know? um, there and and what comes to my mind is a is an old line of, don't don't write a check with your mouth that your body won't cash <laughs> 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 so I don't know I just I just came to me I thought I'd throw that out is that helpful I don't, it. yeah
2: yeah AJ musty who is a peace activist mm-hmm. uh, very active in the fellowship of reconciliation uh, many years ago what he said is there is no path to peace Peace is the path. What you're saying about Gandhi, standing, uh, um, living in such a way that you are peace, then that's what you're. That's what you're doing.
0: Yeah, it's there's there's difficulty because if you're in the midst of suffering, you know what to do. If you're watching suffering on TV, it's not so clear. You know, you watch. If you were if you were meditating on a beach in Greece, and you open your eyes, and you're not going to be noting, you know, migrants drowning in the surf. You're going to get up and go help. But if you're watching on TV, you can't do that. So you're left with your response. And we don't want to <laughs> feel the heartbreak. We just don't want to feel the sadness, and we we get angry, and we can respond to the anger out of—I mean—to the heartbreak out of anger or out of compassion. The responses will be very different to the same event.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say, isn't there something to be said about um, <clears throat> the thought always comes to me? In a while of being in the world but not of the world, uh-huh. and um, oh, and um, oh, pretty much um, just not out of naivety, opting out, but oh, but opting out in a way where, you know, the situations of you know maybe not everything, and you may have your own opinions, but like you said, don't make it worse.
0: Don't make it worse.
1: Right. I mean, because uh, there's so much in my world. There's so much judgment on. I have a lot of people in my world that have a lot of views. And they sort of live their lives around their passions. And I respect that, but I don't actually engage. And I ask them, you know, I don't judge them. I hope they won't judge me. It's not saying I don't have an opinion, but, you know.
0: When we look at the world through our opinions, what we see is what's related to our opinion. I'm not sure the Buddha was interested in not being of the world. I think he was fully engaged in the world, completely engaged. And yet, equanimous, it was, o- it was okay. The world was okay.
1: I think what I meant is just being one, you know what I mean, not of the world like we're lighter, just we're all...
0: Open. He responded to the pain and suffering with, with compassion and care, mm-hmm. and care, I think. Um, and he wasn't taking himself out. It wasn't indifference. You know, our, what happens to me when I, when I see these, these stories, I just, it, it's, it's very hard to not cry and, and read the paper. You know? May I and we, we don't want to do that so much that we get angry. And if we just let the hurt, then what comes back is is the compassion for ourselves, too, because we're in this situation. Yeah.
2: I I just met a new baby in our family who was born late in November, and um, just met him last week, Jasper Kenneth, and looked into his blue eyes and saw there that he saw me, and I saw into him that there was no there was no motive not just pure of motive it was no judgment A- acknowledgement that I was and great enthusiasm to be here I think maybe I'm imagining that but I I think the forces that brought him about are magnificent and um, and he that look is, is that principle that you're speaking about, I think. There is no motive, no judgment, just that light of acknowledging, of loving acknowledgement.
0: There's a trick here, too, and that is the Buddha, you know, at one point somebody, there's a, a great sutta, I don't carry them all here, so I'll just tell you if you need a reference, where somebody um, comes to the Buddha and says, I know what the highest moral virtue is not, um, and he recites the precepts, not killing, not taking what's not freely given. And the Buddha said, a brand new baby boy lying on his back doesn't do those things. Is that the pinnacle of ethical practice? The trick is to not do those things when we know, when we know the way the world is, when we've got some experience. So there's sort of that that freshness of that infant, um, which has all the promise could be anything, you know, all the promise, and then there's us, and the it's the same situation applies, but we we have this knowledge that distracts us. I think it distracts us anyway, a lot of it. <laughs> And a lot of our default intentions are out of the packaging that comes with the body that evolution brought us to. We want to survive and reproduce and leave a legacy, Bawa tanha. We want our experience to be pleasant, just across the board. You know, when we plan about things, we plan on how to make things pleasant. We don't plan on how to make things unpleasant. And when we don't get what we want, we get cranky. It's our defaults. Nothing wrong with that. It just leaves us suffering. How so the Buddha leaves some clues, and if we can figure out how to live without contending, that's what the Buddha's teaching. They teach a Dharma that does not contend with anyone. Yeah.
2: So when you were reading or telling us about the Buddha saying, I am right and you are wrong.
0: Where was he saying that? Where did I read that?
2: From the book, about the book, or about the discussion with the monks.
0: Oh, he... So, so
2: is that, like it, it seemed a bit contentious or strong He sat down with the monks views. and he
0: said to the monks who were sticking to the rules, he said, you know, the rules are important, but they aren't the only thing. And we need to look at, you know, what underlies. And he went to the guy who was the Dharma master and said, you know, the rules have some import. Mm-hmm. They aren't irrelevant. So he was trying to move in both directions. He wasn't saying, I'm right, you're wrong. When we say, I'm right, you're wrong, that's the, that's the story behind anger. One of the quotations. One of the ones you read today, wasn't it? Didn't
2: I yeah. hear? Which he said... Can you believe hearing this that he said? Yeah. You said first what should be said last and what
0: last is said. Oh, short. yeah. That's he was imitating the way we squabble. Oh, imitate.
2: squabble. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Because he also had said, you know, don't believe me just because I say it. Right. Have your own experience. And th- but that bit was, I'm right, you're wrong. He, says, don't.
0: Don't, he said, don't engage in wordy warfare. Right. And then this is the way okay, in which we engage of, of wordy warfare. Oh,
2: Right. It seemed very un Buddha like. <laughs> it, it, it was un Buddha
0: like. A bad day at Kosambi. <laughs> it was interesting because this is historically, there's a, there's a lot of data about what happened in, in Kosambi, and one of the king's um, wives was intrigued by the Buddha and made a record of um what he said but kept the copy off site. And so well, spoiler alert. Don't don't do it. Some of the texts are are were preserved from this from this time. You know, and they're still they're still extant more or less. Yeah.
1: So I'm struggling little bit with the
0: reality of where we are and the election coming up and you know my opinion and hearing the Mm
1: -hmm. the
0: candidates opinions and I have to make a choice I have to take a side
1: or not vote and that's not that to Mm -hmm. me that's not a good side to take because it's you know
0: so you do take a side Um, so I guess the only way I can think is is my choice out of compassion and love and that's who I'm going to vote for. But then that other person, I think, is also thinking that they are doing, you know, right the right thing. So, so that thing about taking a side, like at some point, I feel like I need to take a side. Mm-hmm. So. Sides come to us. But he, I think he's talking about taking a side verbally, verbal daggers, verbal argument, to take a side the way Gandhi did to make salt. I was taking a position But it wasn't arguing. He was just making salt and letting the chips fall, you know. Listening to the listening to the um, to the I hate to even call it debate, Um, but listening to the raucous (laughs) chatter, um, watched our own reactions to it, because you know that's that's really it's a way to study ourselves. You know, read what Donald Trump says and you go and just feel your body tense up. It's not a mistake, it's just it's the way the conditions are. And we watch, if we study ourselves, we can uh, have a bit better chance of not making things worse rather than just reacting reflexively, you know, unmindfully. So, you know, Putting your body in place is different than just neener, 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 neener. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you're talking about engagement, engagement, you know, if if we are engaged no matter what. And the question is just how we're going to be engaged. We can be engaged fearfully, angrily, compassionately, all kinds of different ways. I love the early texts because a lot of them um, are, you know, the Buddha was talking about stuff that's very simple but very tough to abandon our own attachment to our own thoughts. As soon as we think we know the way things are, somebody who thinks differently is wrong the story behind anger, just check it out for yourself. I'm right, they're wrong. So don't know is better. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Batchelor in his new book, which is really fabulous by the way, called Beyond Buddhism or After Buddhism, one or the other. He tells about how he and his wife spent seven years in a Zen monastery (laughs) meditating, facing the wall with one question, what is this? (laughs) And he acknowledges this may not be everybody's cup of tea, as he puts it. (laughs) But if you actually ask yourself, seriously, what is this? Do you have any clue at all, really? Mm -hmm. It just happened. And as soon as we have our opinions, we stake out turf, and then defend them. <coughs> so, think about how to live without contention. And in some ways, I think that is a, a really, a really deep pointing and implicit, and it, you know. Figure out how to do it. Thank you very much for your attention.